I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. My mother always told me as a child, you know, if you want something, you go after it doggedly and it's grit and hard work that pays off. You know, very few people just rise through the ranks and succeed very quickly. And I think nowadays it's very difficult to see that with influences and fame happening overnight. Hello and welcome back to the second season of Write Off, the podcast about writing rejection and how people get through it. I'm your host, Francesca Steele, a writer and journalist based in London. I loved talking to Abby Elphinstone, a best-selling children's author who writes about dream snatchers and sky gods and wildcats. She's been called a worthy successor to C.S. Lewis by The Times and talks regularly at schools about her writing process with great enthusiasm, even when the kids mistake her for J.K. Rowling. I'm especially grateful to Abby for fitting me in when she was practically moments from giving birth. And I think that's testament to how she's always keen to chat about her work wherever she can. We actually haven't had an author on here before talking about rejection at the agent stage a great deal, but Abby is a good one. She was rejected, wait for it, 96 times by agents before she got her first book deal. And she is not afraid to talk about it, once posting some of those rejections online. We talk about what she learned from all that feedback, how her dyslexia stood her in good stead for years of hard work, and mapping out stories before she starts. Before we get going, I just want to say something about Write-Off's sponsor this season. Dealing with rejection is just one part of a writer's life. Jericho Writers are with you for every word. They are all about embracing the entire journey, rejections and all, and are committed to helping you hit your writing goals whatever stage you're at. Their inspiring courses, editorial services and events have launched writing careers, And members benefit from heaps of additional content, such as video courses, masterclasses, and weekly live online events, many of which I've enjoyed myself. By becoming a Jericho Writers member, you can get insight into the world of agents and publishers, power through your plot problems, level up your prose style, and polish your submission before it lands in an agent's inbox. Plus, you'll be learning alongside a worldwide community of writers who will keep you motivated and on track, even when a rejection rolls in. 
Listeners of the podcast can get an exclusive 15% discount on membership by going to jerichowriters.com forward slash join dash us and entering the code write dash off. I will put that in the show notes. So let's hear from Abby. I don't think I did want to be a writer. I loved being outside and I spent a lot of my childhood outside. Yeah, I grew up next to a farm at the foot of a glen. Um, weekends were spent scrambling over the moors, building dens, looking for eagle's iris, making potions out of flower petals and soil. Um, and there was a lot of time to be bored, a lot of unstructured time. And having become a mother myself in London, I realised how different that is to modern parenting now when you're often funneling your children into clubs or after school activities or whatever. But I, yeah, I grew up miles away from anywhere to do a club. And um, so I had a lot of unstructured play. And I think out of that grew this, I don't know, awareness of being bored and out of boredom creating. So I actually think being bored is a really, really valuable tool as a child because mm. it's out of that that you then yeah, build things, whether it's physically, you know, building a den or whether it's mentally building a story in your head. So I definitely had ideas for stories turning over in my head. I was a very imaginative child. I was always doing imaginative play, but I didn't have this awareness that I wanted a, a career as an author. Um, I knew that stories mattered. My mum and dad read to me every single evening before bed. And I think it was the fairy tales. I remember them reading um, most. And I think fairy tales are sort of one of the most profound and memorable forms of step storytelling because they're meant to be read aloud and shared. They're written to enthrall and hold you spellbound. Mm. Um, and I loved the motifs that, you know, crept up again and again, the old witch or the goblin or whatever. Um, and I love the voices my father used to do with, you know, I don't know if you remember Three Billy Goats Gruff, you know, who's that happening over my bridge? And Yeah, my kids yeah. love that now. Yeah, it's so memorable and it really stuck with me. And I remember um, that... They were just such formidably brave kids. And I love that idea that the kids could outwit um, the witches or the goblins or whatever. Um, it's like that G.K. Chesterton quote. I think it's paraphrased from loads of other authors, but um, fairy tales do not tell children that dragons exist. Children already know dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children dragons can be killed. And I love that idea uh, that, yeah. you know, they did sort of teach you that you could be a match for dragons and um, yes. and whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the stories are important. And I think when a parent sits down and takes time out of their busy schedule to read to you, they're showing you that you matter as well as stories matter. You know, it's a really yeah. precious time. Yes, I think that's such an interesting point because it's, it's, it's such a shared experience. It's not just one yeah. person doing something entertaining the other person mm -hmm. in some kind of who's passive on the other side yeah um so how did that evolve then I mean I I know that you um as an adult realized you'd had dyslexia the whole time hmm. did you when you were at school did you feel less than somehow in in English classes or any classes did you find that yeah, struggle yeah I didn't know I was dyslexic at school as you say I just had this awareness that it took me a lot longer to process ideas or organize ideas than other people. So when my friends would sit down to do their homework, they'd do it in an hour. And I'd just be sitting there for two hours thinking like, well, why am I here? Because I don't feel that I'm struggling academically. I just, it's not coming fast. And often if somebody says something to me, I, let's say they're reading out a phone number or whatever, I'll write down completely the wrong numbers. Like they'll say three and I'll write down one. And um, I think I've got this oral processing thing that sort of is not very 
um, helpful when you're learning. But I had really supportive teachers. Half, well, half of them were supportive. Half of them thought I was a nightmare. I got bored really quickly in lessons <laughs> that I didn't enjoy. So my head teacher once wrote a report saying, um, and she branded me as yeah, unteachable and said I was prone to spasmodic outbursts of tiredness in collaboration with my friends. I never listened. But then I had other teachers, um, English teachers particularly, who were fabulous. And they realized that I loved stories. And even though it took me longer to process my ideas, that I did have a real passion for them. Um, I never read aloud at school. And the words would jump up and down on the page. And, and I wouldn't understand the words I was reading. Um, and even now, actually, I you know, tour the country and doing talks to schools and um, school children all over the place. And um, I rarely read aloud. Often it's, I'm speaking to sort of 250, 300 kids. So it's actually hard to read to that many kids and you know, keep mm. them all entertained. And I find actually talking about the writing process is probably more fun for them in that space. And then they can go and read the books if they want, want to. But um, yeah, and no, I never read aloud. And, but I did, yeah, I did love stories. It was just that I struggled, you know, putting ideas down on paper. And it wasn't until I think my first job, I read English at university in Bristol. And then after that, moved to London. And I worked in PR and marketing for a couple of years, which was very vacuous. And I was terrible at it. Um, but <laughs> my boss there said, I think you could be dyslexic. Um, the way you think is very creative, but very convoluted. I think even though the job itself at the marketing firm, I really didn't enjoy. And yeah, I wasn't very good at it. I think it did teach me invaluable skills to pitch myself as an author years later. So I definitely think that being able to be quite ballsy and approach people, ring up people and sell a story or whatever, meant that when it came to me trying to profile myself and trying to launch myself out of the start, starting blocks in such a competitive field, mm. I had this awareness of how to do it. So I was, you know, calling up literary festivals and saying, this is what I do. And it's really fun for kids. And I used to be a teacher. Um, I did that after the marketing. And so mm. I gave me a lot of confidence. And I remember a lot of writers who were really established at the time, you know, children's authors I really respected, messaging me on Twitter saying, how have you got that gig? You know, and I said, well, I just emailed them. I put myself shamelessly forward. And I think that wasn't done you know, sort of six, seven years ago, it was very much you wait to be invited by Chartman Festival or Oxford Literary Festival that's, or whatever. That's brilliant, Abby. I mean, I think now writers or wannabe writers can see that authors do a lot of festivals and talks and yeah. tours and things like that. But I, it's not something you think about a lot when you're just starting because you just want to get published. And so... I know. For a lot of people, it's quite a shock that you that you have to do that. It's the antithesis of what a normal author is, isn't it? When you think that, yeah. not, not normal authors, no such thing, but you know, the, the archetypal author is often a little bit introverted or sitting down quietly and coming up with these ideas. And especially as a children's author, you're expected to be a sort of showstopper on stage. You know, I've done talks where the Concord stored in Manchester with Tom Fletcher, who used to be in McFly. And you know, he comes up with his guitar and then there's another guy doing magic tricks. And then I'm like, let me bore you about plot structure. <laughs> but you have to be like a magician or a singer or, you know, you, you have to really try to put on a bit of the show, um, which, yeah, is, is the antithesis of what many authors think they're doing when they set out. Yeah. Yeah. How did what you were doing with PR and teaching evolve into writing? I hated the marketing job and PR so much that I booked a one-way ticket to Africa and um, I taught English out there um, in a secondary school for a year. And it was while I was there that I started writing as well, or just pulling together loose threads for a children's book, largely based on growing up in rural Scotland and adventures outside, it's a swallows and Amazon Z. I came back and I went into teaching in the UK and I tried to write alongside the teaching for 
about seven years. I don't know if you know, you know, many teachers, but it's just such a full on job. You're up at six, I'd cycle from now to work, do my day's work. And then I'd mark until, because it was secondary school, I could mark GCSE coursework to about nine. Then I'd try and write till 11. And it was really full on. And I felt that all my creativity was going on the kids because I get bored very easily. And I so I tried to make my lessons really, really exciting and tried to get them really reluctant readers, often the dyslexic readers interested in stories and things. So yeah, a lot of my, I think, effort, creative effort was going in there. And I was writing these books and I sent my first book off when I was 23 or 24 to a bunch of agents. I bought the Children's Writers and Illustrators Yearbook and I systematically just went through it. I, I now realize that it's probably better to you know, send your book out to one or two agents, wait for some feedback and then go to the next ones. I did a blanket approach and sort of sent it to 30 and um, got rejected by all of them. Um, God, oh God, I know. Can I, can I just ask how long, how long at that point had, been, had you been writing um, the book that you sent out? And what so were you... It was, what was the first one called? There have been so many rejected manuscripts on Jessica, I can't even remember. Um, this one was called The Legend of Erkenwald, which is really interesting because it was a terrible book. Even my mum was like, yes, it's not great. But I knew the name Erkenwald in my fourth book, Sky Song, which went on to be Watson's Book of the Month. So there are elements I've used to it since. But yeah, this first book was a, a sort of mashup of everything I loved about the wild and Scotland and fantasy books I read as a child. It got rejected, but there were a few agents who said, there's something about your writing that's really unusual. And one said, you made me laugh, laugh out loud, which is very, very difficult to do. And then quite a few of them said, you've got this rare ability to think back to what it is like to be a child with all the fears and thrills and the sense that the world is lying open at your feet, you know, that sense of wonder and possibility. And they said, you remember that vividly. And whilst your work is hopelessly unpolished and, you know, very, very bad in parts, there is something. And I think that gave me a kernel of hope to think, well, I'll write another one. So I then wrote another one. Um, and that got rejected by an, another 30 agents. So we're on sort of oh, 60. God, how, how many, how long had that taken you? With all in all, it was seven years and I wrote three books and they all got rejected. And there was a total of 96 rejection letters from agents in that period. Oh, so, <laughs> and it was, yeah, just incredibly humiliating as well as upsetting because I told my friends that I was writing. And so they really sweetly would every time they saw me, you know, how's it going? You know, have you got an agent yet? And I'd say no, but but one agent said it was quite good. <laughs> I think because one agent said it was quite good very early on, it got me overexcited. And so I sort of started saying to my friends, you know, I'm pretty excited. I think I might get a book deal one day. And it didn't and it didn't didn't happen. Um and that was yeah, seven years and Wow. After the second one, did you think okay, now I've, I've tried twice, I, I, I'm being told this isn't good enough. Did that occur to you or did you just keep on thinking, no, I've just got to improve? Do you know what? It, it never occurred to me to give up until I'd written the book that finally did get published because I thought this is actually my best shot now and if I can't get it now, I think maybe it's not for me. And I think the reason I kept going after this when the second book then got rejected 30 times was because of my mother. She always told me as a child, you know, if you want something, you go after it doggedly and it's grit and hard work that pays off. You know, very few people just 
rise through the ranks and succeed very quickly. And I think nowadays it's very difficult to see that with influencers and fame happening overnight. Fame that's so transient as well. But I think lasting success and making a career in the arts is built on graft and grit. And so um, my mum had a bit of a, a difficult childhood. And so she definitely instilled in me this sense of um, determination and possibly my having dyslexia as well. I knew what it was like to constantly put in the extra hours that other people didn't have to. Um, That's interesting. And I think, yeah, and it's, it's, it's not something to boast about. I got 96 rejections from agents for getting a deal. Um, and the seven year struggle, you know, even though it was painful, lonely and you know, frequently embarrassing with my friends and family, it did teach me a lot about joy and determination, not just in writing, but also in life than any of my good fortune ever has. So I think, you know, when now I, you know, let's say I get an unflattering book review or I miss out on an awards shortlist, it doesn't mean I'm dancing with happiness, but I do feel this really strong sense of happiness of where I've got to and how difficult it was to get there. So disappointing days kind of stay firmly in perspective. And I think I would take that hard won grit and joy over an easy book deal any day, just because it just sets you up for other things in life as well. Like, becoming a mother. I had four months in hospital before my first baby. And I think I thought back to that time when I was writing and getting rejected and, you know, how you can just keep going through that. So I do think it at the time was pet painful, but latterly, I think it set me up well for how to face hardship. Yeah, I think that's so wonderful to hear. And actually it does, you know, some of the people I interview on this podcast talk about rejection later on. And I think that can sting in quite a different way. If you've not experienced mm. it earlier, then it's quite a shock. Definitely. And also people talk a lot about how difficult it is to maintain a career and that, you know, you're not, you don't just get a book deal and then relax forever after. And no. so knowing that, you know, rejection is part and parcel of the whole shebang is quite important. Definitely. And I didn't get my, so my first book wasn't Wolverstone's book of the month or on loads of shortlists. And I wasn't expecting it to be, you know, I thought it was a long game and it happened on my fourth book. That, that was when things started to take off a bit, my book Sky Soul. And then the one after that was um, um, a World Book Day book, you know, those ones that they make for yeah. um, a kid can get one in the UK and they've just given a token. So that's when things started to get really exciting. And then, you know, I started on to Blue Peter with the wonderful Cressida Cowell things. But if I'd had all that, that in my first year, I think I would have been so accustomed to it and just thought, well, this is my lot. But the first three years I wrote a trilogy and it was yeah, largely based on growing up in Scotland. Those three years, I worked so unbelievably hard. I stopped teaching. Um, because I couldn't run the writing alongside it because I was doing so many school events and I was getting paid to do the school events. So that was giving me an income as well as the royalties and things. And um, But the advances when I started out weren't huge. And yeah, I was working really, really hard on the school visit trail. And I did in my first year, I did 97 school visits. And um, that was me sort of pitching for them because no one knew who I was. you know. And so I just was emailing teachers saying, I used to be a teacher and this is what I do when I've written resources on the books as well. Um, and so you can use them and implement them in the classroom. And I think that grassroots approach paid off years later. I did a lot of work on social media, building connections with booksellers and fabulous librarians. And I've now got two kids and another one on the way in a couple of weeks. And so I don't go on social media nearly as much now because I have so little time and what little time I have, I try and use it to write. But definitely in those early years, that graft of getting into schools and making connections was so important to stand alongside the fact that you've got this agent that got this deal. Yes. Yeah. Hello, Writerish Podcast listener. I'm Daniel Ford, co-host of the Writer's Bone Podcast. 
and founder of the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. At least one person that I know of has called me the Norman Lear of podcasting, but I'm here to talk about our flagship, Writer's Bone. We're a literary podcast that believes in the power of the written word. My co-host, Stephanie Ford, and our Friday morning coffee host, Caitlin Malqui, believe that storytelling can excite us, educate us, and at its best, unite us. Our mission is to promote authors of all backgrounds, races, creeds, and experiences. Since 2014, we've had the privilege of talking to bestsellers, debut authors, screenwriters, actors and actresses, and so many others that embrace creative endeavors. We hope you'll subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, because we have no intention of stopping anytime soon. And our simplest, perhaps our best advice, keep writing, everyone. I just want to go back a little bit, if it's okay, to um, the time when you were going through these three novels that didn't sell and the 96 agent rejections, because you mentioned a sense of humiliation, sort of telling family and friends, which at the time must have felt really painful because it was, you know, over an extended period of time. And and I agree that was something I felt very much a sense of humiliation, which people tell you should just enjoy the writing and hope for the best. But it does feel humiliating to tell people you're writing a book and keeping on going and then sort of not getting anywhere. How did you deal with that at the time? I don't know whether I was just very blinkered or couldn't really see. I mean, I, I imagine that my friends and family behind not behind my back sinisterly, but you know, behind my back was thinking, this must be so embarrassing for her. But at the beginning, there was so much determination that I didn't really see the embarrassment. I just thought, oh, well, everyone in the creative arts has a setback at the beginning. And so I'll plow on. But when it became, you know, years um, and three failed books and yeah, close to a hundred rejections, I did sort of feel, oh God, this is embarrassing. I wish I'd always never started. But I think possibly, yeah, just having that a mother who told me to work hard having the dyslexia just made me want to keep going and keep trying. Though the last book I wrote, The Dream Snatcher, which became my debut, um, I did feel this is all I've got now and I'm exhausted and exhausted by the ordeal of submitting all these books and so much of myself and being rejected. And so I don't know what would have happened if that one had got rejected as well. Maybe I wouldn't have carried on going. You never know. But I did feel so tired. And when I got the book deal, people said, how did you, you know, how do you, so when I got the agent, how do you feel? I just remember thinking, I feel utterly exhausted. And I think I do that in a lot of elements of my life is that I don't actually realize I'm struggling at the time. <laughs> I just keep going, keep going, keep going. And then afterwards I completely collapse and think, oh my gosh, that was brutal. <laughs> um, but at the time I just keep going. <laughs> oh, it's an incredible asset. And it obviously stood you in good stead. What was it like then when you did get your book deal? I mean, obviously you said you felt exhausted when you got your agent, but what was mm. it like when you actually got the deal? I was very naive in that I didn't realise you could get an agent and then not get a book deal. For me, I, I just absolutely assumed I was convicted, but convinced, sorry, that you got an agent and then you automatically got a deal. I know, like speaking to you, that that is completely not the case. And so many of my friends have got agented and then not managed to then get to the next stage. So I wasn't aware that there was a possibility that I could have then been further rejected. My agent did a cool thing where she submitted my book just before Christmas and she sent a little teaser of this prophecy I've written in rhyme on a little Christmas postcard to lots of publishers. And a few got back and said, this sounds really interesting. And then we submitted it in January, I think it was. Oh, um, idea. It was really cool. She, it was um, 
Hannah from DHH Literary Agency. And so I think that sort of got people a little bit excited. Well, this is interesting. Yeah, she steered me through that process. And we had some rejections initially, close misses. We went in for a meeting with Macmillan, but then they couldn't get the book past their sales team. And the first book is all about Romany gypsies and um, basically kids living wild. Um, And I wanted an excuse for them to be living wild. So I had them in these beautiful Botox wagons in the woods. And that's quite difficult for the European market, apparently, because there's a lot of prejudice against Romany gypsies. And so the sales team, I think, Milan were worried that they shouldn't take it on because it would be contentious out there. So there were a few narrow misses with sales acquisitions and things, not quite get, getting on board with the editors. And Bloomsbury was quite a close one. Um, but it was Simon and Schuster who eventually, they, they put down the offer straight away for two books. And so that was you know, really, really exciting. Um, but yeah, I don't think I really entertained the possibility that there could possibly be more bad news after the agent. <laughs> I just assume <laughs> I've had my share. Um, but yeah. What's the moment when you've stood still and gone, okay, this is really happening. This is my dream or my, all my hard work or whatever you want to call it has come to fruition. And here I am, I'm a writer. When was the moment that you realized that and celebrated it? I think there's two moments. It's the first time you see your book in a bookshop and there's your name on the spine or on the front cover, you know, if it's on a table or whatever. And that's such a powerful moment because ultimately my aim was to sit down and write a book and see it in a bookshop and imagine children reading it. And it was my dad who said to me, he said, I'm not knocking ambition, but always remember that that was your root goal. That's what you wanted. And everything else is a bonus. And I think that's really helpful to hear because creativity can be such a restless thing. You know, you're always looking sideways, you know, oh, my friend's got a deal with Sony and her books being turned into movies or, oh, my mate's just been translated into 25 foreign languages. And, you know, there's a tendency to never really stop and be still and think, I've done really well here. So I'm trying to remember the, the initial goal. And that moment of seeing, you know, your book in a bookshop. And um, I remember a little girl at the till um, in London in one of Daunt books buying one of my books. I was so excited. I was behind her in the queue and I sort of tapped on the shoulder and said, I wrote that. She thought I was completely mad. Well, I notice with my children sometimes, I mean, now that they're at school, they sometimes get authors coming in and they yeah. oh, I wrote a book and so on. But sometimes, especially when they're very little, they're kind of amazed that somebody's written a book. It, it's like a really mm. weird concept and they think it, the stories almost exist in of themselves without any yes. human input. And they can't connect with you. Yeah, when the author comes in, they said, did, did you write that? And I remember going on stage once and um, this little kid in the front row said, is that J.K. Rowling who writes all the books? And uh, <laughs> every book. And, um, and then her pal next to her said, no, it's some random woman with a catapult. <laughs> it's like coming with a catapult that I carved when I was a little kid with my dad and that featured oh, in, in the dream snatcher. But yeah, I think... That is quite humbling. It's basically impossible to be arrogant as a children's author because children just cut you down to size every single day. Yeah. Um, but my kids, like, I've got yeah, two kids and they think it's normal to write in books because I sign, they watch me do signings and things. So they often like will just pick up a book and start like writing their name in. And I'm like, you don't actually have the power to do that. Oh, that's so sweet though. The rejections, yeah. And um, over the course of those three books um, that didn't make it, I know you've said in the past that you really tried to take on board some of the agent's comments. What mm. do you think you incorporated that made your writing better? 
Yeah, I think it's a huge thing that you've got to be humble enough to take criticism, but determined enough to bounce back from it. So it's not enough if agents are saying, you need to work on structure more or your narrative voice needs to be more consistent, convincing. It's not enough to think they're wrong. You know, I, I think you really need to listen. Are they telling me something that's really going to enrich my writing? I did take on board everything they said. And sometimes I was trying to do too much to try and please too many people. But there were core things that were repeated through the, the rejections that I did think actually they're right and they'd made my books better and um, my writing better. Um, I've completely forgotten what the original question was from you. <laughs> <laughs> what were the specific things that, that they um, criticised, I guess, and what you incorporated and actually made your writing better? Were there specific um, ways of doing a part or specific stylistic techniques? Or Yeah, they said that the narrative voice was sometimes inconsistent. So I've had this sort of quite omniscient I'm telling you a story voice. <laughs> um, parking probably back to the fairy tales I loved. I love that third person narration of scooping someone up and telling them a bedtime story. But they said sometimes you, you didn't stay in that voice. You'd slip out of it. And that was jarring. They said your structure was really loose. I remember that. They said, try and write shorter chapters. And each time your characters get over one hurdle at the end of the chapter, they're then presented with another problem. That was a huge help for me, actually, that sense of driving on your, your story. And it doesn't need to be a physical problem. It could be mental or whatever. But that sense of obstacles and characters overcoming them. I think it was Vladimir Nabokov who said, the writer's job is to get a main character up a tree. And then once they're up there, chuck rocks at them. And I think that is completely right, is the, these obstacles. So that was that was so helpful hearing that, because I think I was just loosely writing a story that meandered and drifted and didn't enthrall and hold a reader. And now more than ever, when your books are competing with screens and iPad games and all this sort of thing, you do need an arresting story for children, a story that's going to grab them. Yeah. And I actually think that as a reader and a writer, I'm saying this, I think that applies to all sorts of books, not just children's, but adults, literary, commercial, whichever. It's just a different way of making them appear driven. Obviously, you're going to have yeah. different paces for different types of books, but nonetheless, you want to keep people's attention somehow Yeah, in the exact attention for that genre. So, yeah. And I do think because we're learning to read shorter chunks of information, because often we're reading on a phone or a tablet or a, you know, an, um, a screen that you're used to reading smaller amounts of text. And so we get very bored. We give up if the chapters are quite long. So I do think even in adult books, I find it quite helpful when the chapters are short. <laughs> You're a big success now, I would say. You've written, I think, nine books, two trilogies, yeah. two, two best two bestsellers. Is that right? Someone um, asked me this the other day. What do you need to do? How many copies do you need to sell for it to be a bestseller? I don't know. <laughs> I actually don't know. I don't know I, yeah, I, I actually don't know. I mean, I... It's really weird. I think they've never started writing best-selling author on the bottom of the book. So I'm happy with that. I have no idea what it means. I'm like, when did that change occur? I think that Waterstone's <laughs> book of the month is a pivotal moment though, for any author. If you get that slot, it's so powerful because of the visibility of your book. It's suddenly in windows. It's on tables. It's in booksellers' minds. They're personally recommending it to the parents or carers who come in saying, I want a book for my kids or my grandchild or whatever. So yes. that's definitely... Turn things around, and and Sky Song, the Times called, makes her a worthy successor to C.S. Lewis, which is a pretty big thing to say. And yeah, it really would have plastered on every marketing material. <laughs> it's a really good one. Um, <laughs> do you now feel secure in your career? Like that's it, you've got it nailed. Not really. No, I don't know whether this is just symptomatic of being in the creative arts, but you do just suffer such self doubt. 
And I don't know whether it's also having children, but I don't have as much time as I used to. So I could usually guarantee a book would be vaguely successful because I could grassroots it. I could get out, spread the word of mouth. But now I just don't have the time as much. Um, and so you start doubting that you can carry it and you're reliant on other people, which is, yeah, if you can get any of it done before all that comes along, that work, that um, mother load or whatever, then it's kind of helpful. But um Whenever you sit down to write a new book, like when I look at a blank Word document, I'm sort of filled with dread. I'm excited when I'm thinking of the ideas, but when it actually comes to putting them down on paper, I think I can't do it. I just can't do it. But then when I've written to one or two sentences, it's this rhythm that comes back. And I'm like, no, this isn't something that's lost. Because a lot of people say, a lot of my friends, you, you should write every single day. There's no way I can write every day like I do with the kids and stuff. I just can't. And so that scares me that I'll lose it if I have a few months where the kids are up all through the night teething or I'm breastfeeding one of them or whatever. But I just got over that because, you know, as a mother, you you can't plan when you write. You just write when you bloody well can. And I think um, I had a second baby um, at the beginning of the pandemic. So in April 2020, and it was just the absolute peak of the pandemic. So I lost all my childcare. I had no time. I had a one, uh, this baby and then a four-year, a three-year-old at home as well. And in the daytime, I just had no time to do anything other than look after these two kids. And I began to feel quite resentful that I had no time to myself, not even five minutes. And so I ended up writing a book on the notes section of my mobile phone at three in the morning when I was doing light feeds. And that sounds absurd. Like if I was told, you've got to write this book, you've got to do it in the middle of the night when you're breastfeeding, I'd say absolutely not. But I think creativity is such an enormously powerful thing and, and feeling. And similarly, when I was in hospital for four months before my first kid was born, I wrote a book and people said, how on earth did you write a book? That and is amazing. I remember the picture of you that you, yeah. you either tweeted or Instagrammed. I mean, it was incredible, Abby. Well, I like, hooked up to all these like machines for pneumonia and disaster things and then just writing. But I do think out of destruction, if you can build something, whether it's like a lot of people do sewing or physically making something woodwork with their hands, mine's, yeah, writing stories it lifts you out of where you are and so when the pandemic happened and I had no time for myself and I thought actually I do have some 20 minutes at three in the morning and then I started to build this book line by line it was just a couple of sentences every single night and then after you know a few months I was like oh my god I've got 10,000 words that's a picture book <laughs> a long form picture book and it became um the frost goblin which comes out this Christmas yeah so you do feel full of self-doubt every time you write a book but as long as you don't hold yourself to hard and fast rules, especially if you're a parent and you're struggling with little kids, you just write when you can and everything's a bonus. And I think, you know, you gradually just keep maintaining a sort of level head and I can do this. And do you plan quite heavily? I know you, you draw mm. quite a lot as part of your planning, don't you? Yeah, um, I think this is all linked to the dyslexia. Um, I'm a really visual learner, so I can't I can't understand anything until someone's drawn it for me or shown me a map of something or whatever. So I draw my way into my stories. And if I was to write straight off, I think they'd be a complete mess. But the maps that I draw of the imagined world I'm going to write about give me the scaffolding and the confidence to then launch off into the written word. So my I write adventure books often sort of a dash of magic in, and so I draw a wild landscape I want to write about. So in The Crackle Dawn Dragon, that's the most recent book. It's a sea kingdom filled with underwater palaces and fire krakens and silver whales. So I drew a landscape that was a sea kingdom and then I get a different colour pen and I draw a journey through the map. Imagine various things happen at various points and that becomes my plot. So drawing your plot, for me anyway, helps solidify it and 
make sense of it. Um, I sometimes draw onto um, audience survey maps, so real maps, if I'm trying to write about a place that I know exists and I want to get the topography completely right. But yeah, I plan meticulously and I want to be one of those authors who just picks up a pen and writes a story. Um, like David Armand with Skellig, it's just effortlessly brilliant, but I, I'm just not one of them. <laughs> so does it take you a long time to plan before? Do you get everything straight in your head? Does it take quite a yeah. few months before you then put yeah. it to paper? Yeah, it takes me probably, I mean, the books have been about between sort of 55 and 65,000 words, the children's books. I've written a couple of picture books, which are about 10,000 words, but the longer ones, yeah, 55, 65,000. And it takes me about a year, maybe six months of coming up with ideas and planning and getting things straight in my head. And then six months of writing and editing. And sometimes I'm writing a book and the characters, I realise that they totally wouldn't do what my plan says they're going to do because they've grown organically as I write. So rather than in just writing what they might do, I then change the plan. <laughs> and then, um, you know, then I, I do, they do, it does change. It's not like a rigid plan. It's just that if I've got that plan and I don't feel so much of the self-doubt that I might do if I just launched off and thought, I hope this one goes well. It's kind of like an anchor when you're, yeah, you're right. definitely. I've just got one last question, which is, Obviously, we've talked about your visits to schools quite a lot. My goodness, I can see why you'd be so good at that. But you clearly meet a lot of children. And I wonder what you would tell young people thinking about writing, but maybe worrying that they're not good enough. Because I think a lot of people worry about their kids at school finding creativity a little bit stifled by virtue of the way that exams work and the way that English is sometimes, not always, but sometimes taught, or just, you know, by virtue of writing as a career being seemingly hard. I wonder what you would tell young people thinking about writing. Um, or when I kick off my school visits, one of the first things I say is that I used to think that the people who got to become authors were the people that were so unbelievably clever, the academic elite, that they just looked at a blank sheet of paper and a story tumbled out. But I say all you actually need to write a brilliant story is an idea that nobody else has stumbled across yet. And your teachers and your parents and your carers, they can help you with the grammar and the spelling, but it's the idea that's transformational and, you know, ideas are so powerful. They could change the world, spark revolutions. If you tell the children that, that all they need is a, you know, a what if, what if the world actually isn't like this, it's like this. It's quite empowering for them. And then I often at the end of my talks give like three top tips if they think maybe, just maybe I could write a story. And one of them is um, to carry a notepad you know, just with you or keep it by your bed because sometimes dreams are really great, but you forget them by more by breakfast time. So scribble them down. You, your writer is like a detective. They're just watching the world fiercely for the things that most people miss. And then the second point is looking up and out from screens. A lot of people, especially actually adults, not children, but adults get sucked into the Twitter world and think that if they're there and they're prominent there, then that equates to literary success. I think it's like 8% of the UK is on Twitter. So it's like nothing. <laughs> um, you will sell some books on Twitter, but the real genius will happen when you're sitting silently writing your brilliant idea down. I say to kids, yeah, make sure that, you know, you look at, up and out from your screens because the world's a precious and very beautiful place full of wonder and magic. And that's where the stories are. So write them down. And the last thing is not being afraid to fail, especially sometimes in girls, they can be quite hardwired to succeed and to please. And um, not all girls, but just some, and especially ones who are, are actually quite academic and used to doing quite well. But 
stories aren't like that, you know, they're not predictable. And so it does, you never know which one's going to spark an editor's interest and suddenly become this book that children find unputdownable. So just say don't give up. It's the people who are brave enough to get it wrong who usually get where they want to go. Thank you so much for listening to Write Off. If you enjoyed it, I'd be delighted if you fancied leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. That really helps people find the podcast if they've not heard of it before. Or on Twitter, where you can find me at Francesca Steele. Don't forget that I list my guest's books at my online bookshop, which is uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash Francesca Steele. Details in the show notes. If you buy books there, you are helping me fund this podcast. So thank you and see you next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.